Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Peace Dog Hancock, and along with my friend Patrick Mind Vector Curran, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we find ourselves time-tripping in and out of 1969, the summer of love, where groovy historical threads are weaving into a hip and happening quantitative macrame. So grab your guitar and peace out with us for this summer's final kumbaya. If my math is right. Which is always questionable. <laughs> That's a huge condition. As the uh, high school math teacher. <laughs> five days from when this episode drops will be the anniversary of one of the most major cultural events in U.S. history. Oh my God, it was that long ago that I had my first Rush concert? <laughs> that is amazing. How did you know when that was? It was Woodstock, man. Come on. You remember Woodstock. <laughs> no? You're older than me, but weren't we four years old at Woodstock? Uh, I was... Okay, not at Woodstock. At when Woodstock <laughs> occurred. <laughs> yeah, I was older than four. But it will be the 52nd anniversary of Woodstock, coming up five days from when this episode drops. Nice tie back to history. Didn't see that coming. Yeah. So all the stuff that we've been talking about so far throughout all of the summer episodes that we have had. The entire series? <laughs> yes, the whole series. We had always intended to end in the 60s. And I think Woodstock is this beautiful, symbolic coming together event that we could draw on, that we could be inspired by. Could I also add to that? It was a few weeks ago. July 20th in 1969 was landing on the moon. Tranquility Base here. The angle has landed. So you can have your drug-fueled love fest, <laughs> and I will take Neil Armstrong, and we will both embrace the 1969 aspect. Okay, but I can't think of any good theme music from the Moonshot, but I can think of a lot of good theme music from Woodstock in the 1960s. So could we at least use Woodstock maybe as a soundtrack for today? How much say do I have in this? <laughs> if we went with moon sounds as a background for this episode, it would just be... If you want to do your long hair love fest... <laughs> In terms of the theme and the music, I'm on board. Excellent. But, you know, if we're in for a penny, we're in for a pound. In episode one, we were poolside. Mm -hmm. In episode two, you were inexplicably covered with yogurt. <laughs> and me and Solar Cane throwing flaming marshmallows at each other at a campfire. Yep. In three, I think we should drop a tab, get in the Volkswagen van. <laughs> And drive to Woodstock. <laughs> Far out. Let's go. Far out, <laughs> man. Dig it, man. Here okay, we are. Dig it. Dig it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first two episodes, where have we been statistically? Well, in part of my clinical internship, I did rotations through hospitals, and there was this list running around that I love for new physicians. Mm -hmm. And it said, if you've done a procedure once, you tell a patient, in my experience. If you've done it twice, you say, well, in the series of procedures that we've done. And if you've done it three times, you say, I have seen time and time and time again. 
So in the series of episodes that mm-hmm. we've done this summer, in episode one, we did the really old guys. So if I remember, modern probability theory was founded by Socrates and a fig leaf. <laughs> I have a passing memory. It's completely accurate. And then you got us off the rocks by throwing sheep bones. Yes. And then we hit Carl Pearson with a K, Gossett, Fisher, Neiman, Pearson Jr., sampling distributions, null hypothesis, alternative hypothesis, type 1, type 2 error, ANOVA, and COVA. That was episode one. Very much the evolution of statistics toward answering what ultimately were applied research questions about how variables relate to each other, also experimental kinds of conditions. That's a key thing that's going to come up today, is they were very experimental. Mm -hmm. As are we here at Woodstock. Dude. All right. And everything was focused on what is the p-value, what is the probability that I would have observed my data this extreme or more so if the null hypothesis Mm -hmm. is true. Pearson, Fisher, Gossett, Neiman, Pearson 2, that was all focused on that. All right, so that's episode one. Yeah, so episode two, we started to ask the trippy question of like, what does a number even mean? And to get into people like Spearman, who helped us to question the quality of the information that we held in our hand, and ultimately what we can do about having information that is noisy, right? The idea that our observations are a function of some underlying truth, as well as some other things that induce error. So the birth of classical test theory, and then the birth of factor analysis, how a series of measured variables can be evidence of something else, the kinds of things that might be driving those variables to have the relations that they have. And I think we went kind of like latent crazy. There's a factor. I, I see it too, man. There it is. I don't know if I can do this for the whole episode. <laughs> you are such a downer, man. So we had these two threads. Episode one was about the stat stuff. Episode two was about the measurement stuff. And here we are. 1969, bringing it all together, strumming our guitars, and we're just going to have the big quantitative kumbaya. And the thing that was so interesting about episode two in that discussion is, as we noted at the time, no p-values. No critical ratios, no sampling distributions. There's no null hypothesis or alternative hypothesis. It was devoid of that. Now, the actors that were involved in that are on stage left waiting to come out. (laughs) And that does bring us to the summer of love. By the way, I am, just to keep this spicy, going to work in 1960s song titles just into our conversation. See if you pick up on it. Oh, dude, you know I hate shit like this. Oh, come on. (laughs) You know it. So I will tell you what. Uh I will equally share that I am not going to do that. Okay. (laughs) But I will try to flag when you do. So you respect my right to do this here then? No. Oh, okay. Hi, this is Greg in post-processing. Now, Patrick missed that one. In fact, unless he says anything, he's going to miss most of the musical references. Would you say that this doesn't light your fire? It's going to be a long episode. It's going to be a long episode. (laughs) 
It's okay. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Oh, God. <laughs> so we are in a Volkswagen van going to Woodstock because we are on hallucinogenics. No. <laughs> I think we're going to have to jump around in the timeline. Like the wave is going to come in and bring us forward in time, but then the wave goes back out, man. Wow. And it returns you to the ether, and then another wave brings you in at another time. I'm freaking out. All right, let's do this. In episode one, Galton's fingerprints were on things. Ah! <laughs> Get it? He founded the fingerprint. Well, he didn't found the fingerprint. <laughs> he discovered... Hey, look, fingerprints. <laughs> Okay, so Galton was around in episode one. Galton was around in episode two. And Galton is going to be around in episode three. What we've got is the correlation has been around with Galton and turning that over to Pearson for some help. And we still talk about the Pearson product moment correlation. So we got the correlation hovering around out there. But in episode one, we spent a lot of time talking about Fisher. Now, there was general agreement that Fisher was a horrible human being, <laughs> but he may have in passing contributed one or two things to the field of quantitative methodology, including degrees of freedom, p-values, maximum likelihood, experimental design. Some minor things we might brush against yes. <laughs> during our training and, and our work, all right? Now, he also developed the analysis of variance model and then the analysis of covariance model. And there was some overlap and even interaction between Pearson and Fisher and Gossett, which is our lovely student from Guinness Breweries. Go team. <laughs> you really can think about all that work in terms of conditional means. All right, so this was very experimentally motivated. Fisher is rotating crops and randomly distributing fertilizers, and there is treatment A and B and C. There are three cells. Each has a mean, each has a variance, and the ANOVA model is allowing us to say, are all means equal? And if we reject that, that all means are equal, then we can say, well, which means differ? Mm -hmm. They're very discrete mean comparisons. And COVA brings in a continuous covariate, so he would bring in something like rainfall as a continuous predictor, but it was as a control variable. So quite literally, in the mechanism of how we do this, you are adjusting the cell means for the linear influence of this covariate, and then you're again comparing the cell means. But at the very same time, we've got these cosmic waves coming in and out. I'll quiz you from last time. Mm -hmm. Who was the inventor of the Yule log? Oh, oh, George Yule. That's exactly right. Thank you. All right. Factually, I'm not sure that's true, but I, I think okay. it might be that he invented the Yule log. Uh -huh. So Yule is a trip because Yule was working on semi-partial correlations that was a big motivator for Spearman. We talked about this in episode two, mm -hmm. that if you co-vary out a shared influence, you can look at the correlation of what's left over between two variables. Well, that's the cornerstone of the common factor model. Mm -hmm. If you estimate and remove a common underlying factor, then those residual correlations should go to zero if that structure holds in the population. Well, part of why he was doing that with the partial correlations is he was doing straight up regression. Mm -hmm. 
And some people, it's hard to draw firm boundaries in this stuff, but it is generally believed that he presented one of the very first applications of multiple regression in social science research. Hmm. So we do name names, who's a eugenicist and who is not, and George Ewell is most definitely not in the eugenics camp. And indeed, he was very dedicated to understanding the cause of poverty and social inequity in turn-of-the-century Great Britain. And he published in the late 1800s several applications of what all of us would recognize as a multiple regression model. That's so heavy. Post-processing note. Technically, the song is subtitled, She's So Heavy, so I didn't really expect Patrick to get this anyway. I only stuck it in here because it is my second favorite Beatles song. What Ewell was doing in the late 1800s was trying to work with a set of correlated predictors and an outcome in a non-experimental setting. Mm -hmm. He was looking at natural variation in poverty, and it's actually one of the earliest applications of a geospatial regression. He was looking at maps in London. It's absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. What Fisher was doing was exactly the same thing, but more from an experimental perspective where you have these discrete combinations of design features. And even though they look very, very different from one another, Mm -hmm. they're all doing the same thing. Yeah, and it's easy for us to look back and realize that. And some people sort of realize that along the way. But you have what you described that Yule is doing that is the seeds of regression. You have our friend student Gossett doing t-test stuff. You have what came to be f-test stuff and analysis of variance. You have all of these things that to many people, and I have to say, even to many people today, feel like these distinct things. I mean, hell, it's not unusual for them to be found in different chapters of our textbooks. It's not unusual to be so they must be these different things. But if we fast forward to the late 1960s, it was made much more explicit for people that these are really all just variations on a theme. And I think, as you like to say, it's just pushing a conditional mean around, right? Right. Whether we're talking about two groups in the form of a t-test and we're just moving the conditional mean to represent what we know as the mean in each of the groups, or in an ANOVA, or if we have covariates in there, or in multiple regression where we're sliding this around a line or sliding it around a plane or a surface, It was Cohen, and we've all heard of Cohen by now, who really sort of reminded us. I don't want to say discovered because I don't think that's accurate at all, but really reminded us that all of this is really just variations on a theme. And I think he helped us to really appreciate the consolidation of all of these things. Yep. And if you're quanti, here's another paper that you should be aware of and should probably go read it because it is very interesting, very engaging. His 1968 article in Psychological Bulletin, Mm -hmm. it is titled Multiple Regression as a General Data Analytic System. And you're exactly right, Greg, is not only are they different chapters, but in 2020, a whole lot of programs have the fall semester of grad stat is analysis of variance Mm -hmm. and the spring semester is multiple regression or some variant of that. And what Cohen did was kind of teleported back to the early stuff Mm -hmm. 
and said, look, these are all the same things. And I love it. I actually have a copy here, Mm -hmm. and I love the way he writes. Let me just read a couple of lines of the opening. He says, if you should say to a mathematical statistician that you have discovered that linear multiple regression analysis and the analysis of variance and covariance are identical systems, they would mutter something like, of course, the general linear model, and you might have trouble maintaining his or her attention. If you should say this to a typical psychologist, you would be met with incredulity or worse. (laughs) Yet it is true, and in its truth lies possibilities for more relevant and therefore more powerful exploitation of research data. So I love that opening paragraph because Mm -hmm. what he's saying is not only are these the same, but we can leverage this to our advantage. And it is subsuming these worlds that were designed around the need for experimentation as well as these worlds that were really more about observation, right? These non-manipulating kinds of worlds. And it all comes together in this one framework that allows us to have variables of different types, sort of different purposes for variables that are a part of one larger general linear model. This was nothing new, and yet he was, as you say, this practical person who was trying to communicate it to an audience that maybe needed to understand that, that there wasn't this artificial separation of these things. And he did a lot of the coding stuff, right? Dummy coding and effect coding and contrast coding, all of that stuff. They're just ways of pushing and pulling this around to do the same stuff that we had thought we had different methods for previously. And I remember reading that in 68, thinking that was... No, it's very insightful and very important. In fact, now, some 50-plus years later, some people have started to reframe their training more in terms of this is a first course in general linear modeling, a second course in general linear modeling. But it really is very hard to break away from the historical roots that were laid down over the prior 75 to 100 years. Yeah, we've talked for years about redesigning from the ground up our first year grad stat sequence to just go from the general linear model and a design matrix. Mm -hmm. You have a continuous dependent variable, just leave that alone. You can mess with that later with nonlinear link functions and stuff. But you just have a single continuous dependent variable and you have a design matrix X. And ordinary least squares in closed form in matrix X prime X inverse X prime Y. That's it. Done. You're done. Closed Mm -hmm. form, non-iterative. It's blue, right? Oh, look, man. The sky is blue. (laughs) Best linear unbiased estimators Uh of the class of estimators. Gauss, Markov, all of this stuff. But X then becomes whatever your IV side is. But what is so cool to see is do a multiple regression with a binary predictor and it's Gossett's Mm t-test. And do it with two dummy codes and it's a one-factor three-level ANOVA. And do it with two dummy codes that interact and it's a factorial ANOVA. Bring in a continuous predictor and it's an ANCOVA. And it's all the same. Like it is numerically identical and it's just historical and discipline that that presents them as separate things. Mm-hmm. But in my book, Cohen 68 is one of the most important papers he wrote of a massive important papers. 1968. So we're a year before the Woodstock Festival. Before now. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> oh, dude. 
he's embedding the multiple regression framework in everything that we do. And I'm not sure how far we've gone beyond that. (laughs) So what we've got in 1968 is not a new development. And he even says on the second page of his paper, a word about originality. Most of the material which follows was, quote, discovered, quote, by the author, only to find after some painstaking library research that most of it had been anticipated in published but not widely known earlier works. Thus, no large claim for originality is being made here. What he's doing is saying, okay, Ewell and his ilk are doing what they're calling multiple regression, Fisher and his ilk are doing what they're calling ANOVA, and really they're all the same thing and we need to appreciate this. But the tide starts going out, and you and I are being pulled back into the cosmic pool. Because at this same time, of course, people are really studying peas, right? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it peas? It's not so much with the peas, but I think I know where you're going. Let me tell you where regression just kind of isn't my bag, baby. This sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. The way people mostly practice it, regression has an outcome variable, a y variable, and you're writing y to be a function of a variety of things, typically a linear function, but we can vary on that. But what if you have multiple elements that you think are dependent And what if you think some of those dependent variables depend on other variables that are dependent within a system? Regression is very focused on one particular form, but way back, 50 years even before Cohen was offering his 1968 Kumbaya of the general linear model, there was a guy who had, I don't want to say a guinea pig fetish. But you just did. But but I just did. Um... (laughs) Sewell Wright was a Harvard-educated geneticist, and he was fascinated, not so much with the peas. In fact, he thought that the whole Mendelian system didn't always work so well. And one of the things that he was particularly interested in studying, and I don't know exactly how, but it was guinea pigs. In fact, there's this story, which may or may not be apocryphal, where he was giving a lecture with a piece of chalk in one hand and a guinea pig in the other hand, and he would write something up on the board, and when he was done, he would use the guinea pig to erase what was on the board. I don't know if it's true, but in my head, it's true. Wasn't life great before IRB? (laughs) But one of the things was he was fascinated by the fact that if he wanted to breed a white guinea pig... How many generations of guinea pigs is he going to have to go to be able to get a white guinea pig? And no matter how many generations of guinea pigs, he was like, you just can't do it. Colors keep creeping in. And so he found the ideas of these very simplistic Punnett squares and Mendelian systems to really not tell the whole story. And so what he started doing is sketching out what we would recognize as path diagrams. He would say, well... There are these things, in fact, we can't necessarily even see all of them. There are these environmental influences, and there are these developmental influences, and there are these heredity influences that come into defining the characteristics of a guinea pig, whether it's the color of the coat or the weight of an adult guinea pig. And between 1917 and 1920, he laid out the method of path analysis. 
And he didn't maybe formally codify it until 1921. He had a paper called Correlation and Causation, which sounds very similar, right? Dave Kenny had mm-hmm. one in 79, mm-hmm. Correlation and Causality. Exactly. But this is back in 1921 in where of all places? The Journal of Agricultural Research. And a number of years later, in 1934, he had a full paper on the method of path coefficients, which was in the Annals of Mathematical Statistics. And for me, the best part of all of this is that this was about theory, right? This wasn't just, and this is me being very critical of regression, hey, let's just throw a bunch of stuff in there and see how they relate to a Y. What Wright was very adamant about was that it is your job to lay out some hypothetical structure about what variables ought to be related to what. That we are not discovering causality from the patterns of relations, but that a real analysis, a real understanding of the world can't proceed without things that you observe in the form of relations and beliefs about what causal forces are operating. But what he was really doing was creating the system that had obviously ties to regression, but allowed us to formally introduce our causal beliefs about how systems operate. And for me, that was just massive, a huge, huge development that kind of just sat there off in that guinea pig corner of the world. And what's a trip about that is the path tracing rules that he first proposed. Mm-hmm. We use them to this day, and it's a replacement or augments covariance algebra. So if you think about a model implied covariance matrix in a confirmatory factor analysis model, and one of the most famous equations in factor analysis is lambda psi, lambda prime, plus theta epsilon, where lambda are the factor loadings, psi is the variance covariance matrix for the latent factors, and theta epsilon is the residual covariance matrix for the items. If you apply from the 19-teens, going into the early 1920s, you apply those same rules, that maps on to lambda psi, lambda prime, plus theta eps, and you get that model implied covariance. I mean, it is unbelievable, and that was over 100 years ago. Yeah. Judea Pearl writes a lot about Sewell Wright, and what he has said, like in the book of Why, which he co-authored with McKenzie in 2018... What he has argued is that Sewell Wright didn't only give us this end run around having to do matrix algebra, covariance algebra. He gave us a rule system that actually informs or codifies what can and can't happen from a causal perspective. So we might think about, hey, I trace from one variable to another, and that's legal according to Wright's rules. What you're really laying out is how one variable can and cannot influence other things. So for me, it's a start of a revolution. But it was just sitting there quietly back in the early 1900s. And it took a really long time before I think the people who needed it most, those of us who work in the social sciences, to get any clue that that was going on. Who was that? Who helped us? There was like Blaylock. Yeah. Who else was kind of putting the pieces together? Yeah. So in sociology, you had Blaylock and you had Goldberger in economics But I think Blaylock was a pretty key figure because he Mm. wrote even in the early 60s about causality and non-experimental kinds of settings. I don't know if I had mentioned this to you before. Blaylock, I think he got his degree at Chapel Hill, Mm. but he was a faculty member at the University of Washington where I went to school. 
I signed up for a course with Blaylock. I was just so excited. Mm -hmm. I was already in dissertation phase. So this is one of those times when you're just trying to cram in as much education at the end of your program as you can while you can still have other people tell you stuff before you have to figure it out on your own. And so I signed up for a course with Blaylock and he passed away right before the course started. I was so, so sad about that. But yeah, he really was the person who helped to pick up on the stuff. And by the way, Wright was still alive. (laughs) Wright had done all this stuff in the early 90s. I mean, he was born in 1889. He lived until 1988 when I was in graduate school. Wright was still alive as people were starting to rediscover things that he had done 50 years later, which is pretty incredible. But for me, that was the sign that change is going to come. But I know. Yeah, there's so many interesting aspects to that story and everything you just described. One is these things are running in parallel, right? 1934, he publishes that work. In 1935, Thurstone publishes Vectors of Mind. Again, what a time to be alive. When a lot of you out there think about a dissertation proposal or a grant application or where you're out for drinks with friends and you want to draw a path model to show what you're hypothesizing or what your treatment is or what you think the mediating mechanism is, picture somebody erasing a chalkboard with a guinea pig. <laughs> this stuff goes back to A leads to B leads to C. We've talked in prior episodes. You draw one headed arrow, you take a shot of whiskey, slam the glass down on the saloon bar, and say, I am saying A in part causes B, B in part causes C. And Sewell Wright got us thinking about what developed into mediation that B accounts for part Mm -hmm. of the relation between A and C. And maybe most importantly, it explains Mm whack-a-mole, right? (laughs) Imagine that you have a population model where A predicts B and B predicts C, but A also predicts C, but you don't estimate that direct effect from A to C. Mm -hmm. You use path tracing rules and you look at Sewell Wright's path diagram and the only place that omitted path can go is through the mediated mechanism. And so a hundred years ago, that was capturing whack-a-mole. And we're doing that today. And some of the brave slam your glass on the bar, single-headed arrows that were done, in some settings, they might make a lot more sense. So if you're talking about a baby guinea pig getting characteristics from the parents, it doesn't make sense that the baby guinea pig gave the characteristics to the parents, right? So there are some settings where drawing an arrow makes a lot more sense because you don't just have time on your side, but you actually have physiological mechanisms. But you start porting that over into the social sciences, and I think we are getting brave in many ways when we start to say that we think these things that were observed, that weren't manipulated, the arrows could potentially go different ways. I think that is an opportunity for bravery. It's also an opportunity for being sloppy as hell. But porting over some of those mechanisms that he developed from the early 1900s, I think, has shaped so much, certainly so much of what you and I do. Oh, dude. I feel like the time tide is going back out. Where are we going, man? I don't know. (laughs) Have I missed a whole bunch of song titles? Yes. Really? That's okay. You got some. Good times. All right. Bad times. All right. Good times. 
I just didn't know if you forgot the gag or not. No, not at all. <laughs> it's all right. We're still happy together here. Let's go. All right. So happy together. I got that one. Ah, I got that one. I got that I one. I gave you that. I gave you that. Yeah, that was a hanging curveball. Yeah, it was. Coach <laughs> is going to make me run laps if I don't swing at that. All right, so I think we should let the time tide take us back in, and we go to the factor model. Mm -hmm. We've got Ewell and his Ewell log and his partial correlations that is inspiring Spearman to say if there's this single underlying general factor that, for lack of a better term, I will call G, mm -hmm. and that in part explains the correlations among a set of scores on a battery of tests. We've got the very first factor analysis, that's 1904, and then we have Thurstone come along, and Thurstone says, dude, come on, one factor? <laughs> we got multiple factors. That's a quote, actually, from Vectors yeah, of Mind. Dude. dude. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Harsh. And Thurstone says, I totally see where you're coming from, but there are multiple factors. All right, and thus the vectors of mind, and he had the primary mental abilities. We talked about this in the last episode. And now we start moving toward a common factor model where there are multiple factors that underlie the items. And then there are uniquenesses, which is what's left over in the item. It's a residual. And we can think about that as a combination of specificity and measurement error. So take a good factor analysis class. You'll learn all this stuff. But the model's saturated. Mm -hmm. All items load on all factors, and if you do an oblique rotation, all factors correlate with one another. So there were different ways of factor extraction. There was Hotelling's principal component analysis, which is not a factor model, but is in the neighborhood. And then we get into principal axis factoring, and there's image analysis, and alpha analysis, and unweighted least squares, until Lolly comes along. So up to Lolly in 1940... Mm -hmm. There is no way to test fit. We have no way of saying, here's a hypothesized factor model, and here is some kind of inferential statement about the probability that I would have observed these residuals if there are no residuals in the population. 1940, Lawley publishes the very first paper on maximum likelihood estimation in the factor model. Very cool. An absolute bear to do analytically. Mm -hmm. You've got gradients. You have Hessians. You have the Fisher information matrix, right? There's Fisher again. ML is fresh, right? So this is amazing that he's doing this right then. Exactly. But what is the amazing thing about ML is we get a likelihood. And when we have a likelihood, we can start talking about tests of model fit. Mm-hmm. We can start thinking about things like omnibus fit, about central chi-square distributions and non-central chi-square distributions, standard errors, which we rarely see in exploratory factor analysis. Yep. They exist. You can get them, but rarely do we see standard errors. We do what Pearson would roll his eyes at as we say, well, I'm going to take any factor loading over 0.3 to be meaningful mm -hmm. or 0.35 or 0.4. It's like dealer's choice, right? But maximum likelihood starts putting us in this area of having likelihood estimation, but we're still allowing all indicators to load on all latent factors. And enter our favorite Scandinavian, Carl Jorskog. Didn't you like teach or something with him? 
Yeah, he and I co-taught a LISREL workshop where I was doing a lot of the foundational stuff, and then he was talking specifically about factor models with categorical data, which was very cool. It is, but how did you open your mouth and even speak in front of him? Yeah, no, 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 that was the most unnerving thing. As people in the class are asking questions about confirmatory factor analysis, I am answering them while one of my eyes is drifting over to see if he's in agreement, you know, because <laughs> he's the guy who invented it. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure at all. But anyway, yeah, it was just ah, such a lovely time. So, yes, I had the honor of doing that and then also being a part of his retirement celebration that took place at the end of 2000. Very cool. One of the best things for me about Yorskog, which we've said before, is actually Yarsku, I believe. One of the best things for me is that this all happened by bizarre random planetary alignment. He, as the story goes, was roommates with another graduate student and a faculty member called his roommate and said, I'm looking for a research assistant. The guy said, sorry, I already have one. My roommate's looking for one. So he hands the phone over to Yorskog. This was, I believe, Herman Vold. And Bold was very much more a PLS kind of thinker, more regression-based. But it's how Yorskog, just by happen chance, started to get his head into a lot of these things, which I think is so cool, right? It's just a phone call. Yeah, all of life is total serendipity. All of you out there who are trying to follow plans is, yeah, just... Give up. <laughs> give up. But we go into the 60s, and two things are happening at once with the factor analysis. One is trying to improve upon the numerical methods of resolving these likelihood problems with the factor analysis. Mm -hmm. All right, so if you look in the 60s, Yorskog has a series of papers building upon one another. He actually has one co-authored by Lawley. Very cool, yeah. Where it was Lawley who pitched the first ball in 1940 for this. But really, they were just trying to figure out how, with these very early computers— Writing programs in Fortran, how do you get a final likelihood solution that converges and doesn't take six months to iterate? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the lines. <laughs> but the other line was where your SCOG starts saying, well, wait a minute. We don't have to allow all items to load on all factors, which is the EFA. Mm -hmm. When you start laying out the model in this more general way, there's no reason at all why you can't start imposing certain restrictions on these parameters, one of which is fixing it to zero. Mm -hmm. You over-identify the system, and it becomes a testable hypothesis. And that brings us to his 1969 Psychometrica paper. So Quanti folks, this is another one you should be aware of. A heavier lift than Cohen's. It's a tough go for me. Yeah. <laughs> because it's the intersection between mathematical statistics and computational statistics of like literally how do you program. And he has step one, compute this. Step two, compute this. Step three. I mean, it's like literally a recipe for how you would write numerical integration and how do you solve these problems. But the title of the paper is A General Approach to Confirmatory Maximum Likelihood Factor Analysis. And it really is focused on the maximum likelihood estimation part of it, 
But within there is very much, here's a lambda matrix that contains your factor loadings. And hey, if you got a hankering, go ahead and punch some of those out, make them zero, and it becomes a confirmatory factor analysis. And now we start to feel Sewell Wright's presence here, right? The idea that you are in charge of which arrows are in your model. Because a confirmatory factor model really is all about arrows. It was all about arrows all the way back to when it was an exploratory factor analysis model with Spearman and many of the folks in between. So what he was saying is, yes, we have single-headed arrows, and yes, we have some places where we are brave enough to zero some of those out. This is huge because theory and capital S statistics are coming together in the same place. And we now have the pieces for these systems where variables can have more complex interplays, measured variables, and these systems where we have the latent variables able to be embedded within this model. So the 60s is where all of these pieces started coming together and setting the stage for whatever has happened in the last 50 years or so. But oh my gosh, what an amazing time. And it's a beautifully written paper. And again, it's a heavy lift. It's very analytical. But he's such a lovely writer Hmm. that there's almost a colloquial aspect to it. He introduces a restricted confirmatory factor analysis, estimates it with real data, presents the chi-squares. Now, what's interesting, we're talking 1969. We have no RMSEA. We have no incremental fit indices. We don't have any of these things yet that will come. But the building blocks are there. We have a chi-square for a fitted model, then it's trivial to get a chi-square for a saturated model, like the Mm -hmm. likelihood, right? And looking at the improvement there, we can get a likelihood ratio test with respect to a baseline independence model. So this is telegraphing the CFI, the IFI, all of that. But there's a neat line in here as he presents a table of different models And he writes, the question now arises as to what is causing the poor fit of the solution in Table 1D. In general, poor fit may be due to the fact that either the number of factors is untenable or the hypothesized structure is untenable or both. That's like 20 years of research in one sentence. Right. (laughs) Did you get the wrong number of factors or do you have the right number of factors and you have the wrong factor pattern matrix? Or is it some combination of the two? And he writes in there, well, it could be one, the other, or both, and telegraphs the difficulty of knowing which that is. Let me ask you, you have the paper right in front of you, right? I do. Is his affiliation in that paper, Educational Testing Service? That's when he was doing his work at ETS, yep. Yeah. Those folks who are in assessment really care about what are the underlying dimensions that we are tapping with an educational instrument, a test, And to what extent do the different items indicate one or more underlying cognitive processes? These models were just spot on needed by the educational assessment community. And up to that point, it was just very exploratory, right? You pays your money and you takes your chances with the exploratory model. And now he's saying, no, 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 no. You have a theory. You think that these items are tapping this particular skill. These items are tapping this particular skill. Some of these items require both skills. And he laid out this beautiful architecture for it. Now, being able to do it is a different story. Takes a lot more work. I hope that your Fortran is sharp back in 1969, right? (laughs) And you've got time. And a giant stack of punch cards. (laughs) 
But this is absolutely gorgeous and right where it was needed. And what's interesting is within reason, Spearman, Thurstone, Fisher would have recognized what your Skog was doing. Mm Mm-hmm. The big advantage that your SCOG has available at that time is a computer. There are those great pictures where they literally take up like a warehouse <laughs> and it has the memory of a flip phone. Right. Is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but he has the ability then to start bolting these different pieces of the machine together in ways that earlier people just weren't able to because of the technology. But it's a symbiotic relationship. Now that we have this ability, we can restrict the factor pattern matrix. We don't have to saturate the factor pattern matrix. But what I find interesting is Lawley, Thurstone, Fisher, even Spearman. I think even Ewell would look at this paper and say the very first thing would be, damn, I want to see this computer. Mm -hmm. And the second thing would be, yeah, that makes sense. Right. I could see that. That's clever. It's very clever. And it does all make sense in the context of the history that was leading up to it. Exactly. All right. So we have followed up on the general linear model lineage that kind of came up into Cohen. I'm a believer. We have taken the stuff that Sewell Wright did. Wait, 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 wait. What? I got it. I'm a believer. Oh. Okay. I got that one. You really got me. Okay. And we did Sewell Wright, who started to create a framework to be able to embed theoretical things. And then we came up into Yorskog, who brought the latent variable world in there. So what a wonderful world. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. What a wonderful world that has been built all the way up into the 1960s. What happens then? Orville and Chuck. (laughs) Wait, are they the popcorn guys? No, they're not the popcorn guys. Dude, that was supposed to be really dramatic, okay? Oh, okay. Okay. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. Orville and Chuck. So wait, who am I in this scenario? This is hopeless. Okay, so (laughs) never mind. Sorry. I'm obviously not going to get my dramatic element here. So in an almost bizarre level of coincidence, we started out early on with Spearman. That was 1904. December 17, 1903, Orville did the first powered flight. Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. The flight was at an altitude of 10 feet and a speed of 6.8 miles per hour. All right, so that was Orville within a matter of months of Spearman. Mm Mm-hmm. Orville was still alive on October 14th, 1947, which happens to coincide to the second edition of Thurstone's Vectors of Mind. So Orville was alive when Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in the Bell X-1. Orville flew at an altitude of 10 feet. Chuck flew at an altitude of 40,000 feet. Orville flew at 6.8 miles per hour. And Chuck flew at 780 miles <laughs> per hour. And Orville witnessed that. And what stands out to me in the conversation that we've had, right? We have seen time and time and time again in mm. our summer episodes. <laughs> did you get it? We have three I episodes. Did. That was pretty okay, good. I'm just making sure you're following along. Good tie here. back. That was good. 
But I think Thurstone, Fisher, Gossett, Hotelling, Cohen, Yorskog, all of these people who we've talked about, they could open some of our journals and they would recognize what was in there. Absolutely. They could understand what was being done in a master's or a dissertation defense. Pearson, Pearson with a K, Mm -hmm. was doing finite mixture modeling. Yeah, with crabs. (laughs) With crabs, a crab (laughs) carapace, right? Thurstone was doing second-order factor models. Mm -hmm. Thompson, in the 1930s, was doing factor score estimation. Bartlett, in the 1930s, was doing factor score estimation. Mm -hmm. We had multiple indicator latent factors. We had path analysis. We had mediation. All of these guys, to varying degrees, would recognize our science. But think about Orville and what he did. How many years earlier? 44. 44 years went from an altitude of 10 feet and a speed of 7 miles an hour to flying 8 miles high faster than the speed of sound. Why haven't we done that in quantitative methods? Add the 22 more years onto that and we're on the moon. Yeah. 66 years from the time he flew at 6.8 miles per hour to actually being on the moon. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. As you said, people would recognize what we're doing today as being very reminiscent of things that were done previously. I don't mean that in a bad way. There were such seminal ideas that have been laid down over the last hundred years. There has been much, much, much to build on. But... Right. I mean, if you think about where we are now, in some ways, it's breathtaking. You think about how we are free from the independence assumption. We are free from the assumption of normality. We have nonlinear models we never dreamed of. We have ability to retain partially missing data in ways that we never dreamed of. We have longitudinal methods that are just Mm mind-blowing. We have all of these incredible advances. But at the same time, Gossett and Fisher and Thurstone would recognize a lot of what we're doing. Yeah. And my question is, where is our Bell X-1 that Chuck Yeager is flying? Mm -hmm. What do we aspire to, right? What is our moonshot? Maybe this is a fun thing to think about when we start a new season, Mm -hmm. to think about what is a quantitative methods moonshot, What would be something that Fisher and Thurstone would not recognize? That is a great question. And I would just like to leave that hanging there. Maybe we can see what we can do about it in the upcoming season. Mm -hmm. So it's time for us to split before the fuzz come. (laughs) I just want to thank everybody for this summer journey into history. And I'm totally looking forward to starting up season three with you. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your summer. We'll take a couple of weeks off and then we will start trying your patience again sometime in August. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Dude, where did we park the van? I don't know, man. You were driving. Hey, guys. Hop in. Aw, thanks, little buddy. Sure thing. I mean, right on, my groovy quanta dudes. Hey, We need some road music for the cool places we're going. Can you hand me that 8-track tape? Yeah, here you go. Where are you taking us? Yeah, where are we going that's so cool? Where? Season 3, gentlemen. Season 3. (laughs) 
Thanks so much for hanging out with us this summer. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you go. Get your motor running. And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other out-of-sight stuff. Finally, you can get far-out Quantitude gear to mellow out in at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to support low-income schools. You've been grooving with Quantitude. We put the peace in piecewise models. Born to be-